This is the Circulate podcast, broadcast by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. It's not about technology and digital versus people. It's about our innovation follows our values. Just period. As we learned in our previous episode, the circular economy is increasingly being viewed by businesses and policymakers globally as a new way of thinking and operating that could deliver sizable economic benefits while taking advantage of the latest technological innovations and having profound consequential benefits for the environment. But where do people fit in? Nikki Silvestri's work is at the heart of this issue focusing on building social equity for underrepresented populations in food systems, social services, public health, climate solutions and economic development. Co-founder and CEO of her own project design and management firm, this podcast has been extracted from a discussion we had with Nikki at the live launch event for the 2016 Disruptive Innovation Festival, a three-week-long online event that explores the future of the global economy. In it, you will hear her discuss what the circular economy means to her. One of the big shifts that I made in the last couple of years when it comes to my career was that the circular economy required me to think a bit broader. She would ask, in a future prosperous economy, how do we keep people in play? The first way I heard about the circular economy was the phrase, keep the molecules in play all along the system. But how do we keep people in play as well? Should approach some of today's largest systemic challenges through the lens of food systems. We didn't, we didn't really value people and we didn't value land from the beginning. And when it comes back to changing policy and when it comes to shifting capital in the food system, that's usually the rub. She'll explain how working with disadvantaged communities food and climate change has ultimately led her to focus on soil. We can ensure that that soil stays really healthy and produces co-benefits. So part of the co-benefits are that soil can retain water better when you manage it well, nutrient density of our food has gone down over time, all of that stuff. And finally, she'll share some of her best examples of the bright spots in the current system and how they hint towards an alternative future. The opportunity with regional economies is the storytelling, is the human connection, is allowing people to see, taste, and touch what circular actually means because they can see every step of the supply chain happening 100 or so miles from their home. And when they understand that, when people understand that, we can make better governance decisions. So that's just a taster of what's to come, but Nikki started with her personal story and how it led her to engage with these key topics. I intersect with technology and the circular economy all the time, but I wasn't using those terms. And that's a bit of what I'm going to be talking about today, is bridging the gap between everyday people, the circular economy, technology, and values. Because 
in my view, technology should support healthy people, a healthy environment, and a healthy economy. It, I mean, and technology is really just the application of knowledge for practical purposes. So digital is not the only kind of technology I'm gonna be talking about. And because a lot of my background has been working with disadvantaged communities, I also think about that, how technology can be useful for those who have not had economic opportunity in the future. What's my story? I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, late 80s, early 90s, in the middle of 15,000 young African-American men killing each other. And so when I talk about disadvantaged communities, it comes from a very rooted place. I have seven older foster brothers. My parents have been involved in the foster family agency world for years and years. And when it comes to the environment, I grew up next to the largest urban oil field in America. 1,100 acres of oil fields was across the street from my elementary school. So when I think about technology and I think about people, that's the root of what I'm talking about. And a lot of my work has had to do with climate change and food systems because that's where I found a lot of hope. Well, not in climate change per se. Food systems is very exciting because everybody eats, everybody can get excited about food, it doesn't bore me, I can sit people down at a table, we can all eat, make merry, have fun. That's how I like to create change. And technology, when it comes to that side of my work, got people access to jobs, the green economy. Wind and solar was an opportunity for people who worked in the dirty economy to start working in the clean economy. And one of the big shifts that I made in the last couple of years when it comes to my career was that the circular economy required me to think a bit broader about what circular actually means. I was focused on urban communities and I was focused on people of color. But rural communities and soil took hold of me. I went to a workshop on soil carbon sequestration which sounded like a lot of big words. And for someone like me who works on reducing carbon emissions, I hadn't thought about drawing carbon out of the atmosphere very much at all. But learning about soil, I became a microbe nerd and started asking much bigger questions. How do we keep people in play? The first way I heard about the circular economy was the phrase, keep the molecules in play all along the system. But how do we keep people in play as well? A lot of the work that I do right now supports the bright spots, is what I call them, in the system. Initiatives that are doing things that are very complex, making connections that other people aren't making in real time, and demonstrating what's possible. So I want to start with the No Regrets Initiative. There's a philanthropist, investor, and owner of a 7,700-acre ranch in Picinus, California, which is right next to Salinas, who's very interested in soil carbon sequestration. And just as a primer, that means that you build healthy soil, and through the photosynthetic process, carbon gets drawn out of the atmosphere and put into the soil. And depending on how well you do that, it can stay in the soil for a very long time and not just get captured in the top layer of organic matter so that disturbances of the soil means that it goes away and back into the atmosphere. Carbon, I can feel myself leaning into nerd and I'm starting to pull myself back right now. <laughs> Carbon is a cycle 
And so for one to be carbon efficient, one should attend to both reducing emissions and getting carbon into the ground. So the No Regrets Initiative is about shifting capital of philanthropists and investors into building healthy soil, whether you work in energy, whether you work in water, whether you work on animal cruelty. No matter what you work on when it comes to regenerative agriculture, you too can be building soil and you too can be creating hope when it comes to the climate. Now when it comes to my concern about people, first of all, talk about circular economy. Building healthy soil is amazing because looking at what comes out of the soil and then how to get it back in the soil as good organic matter is a cradle to cradle, very, very circular economy thing and it asks some really tough questions. People on the landscape can be a very good thing and animals too because a lot of the ground has already been disturbed. And so if we continue disturbing it, but in a thriving, healthy way, we can ensure that that soil stays really healthy and produces co-benefits. So part of the co-benefits are that soil can retain water better when you manage it well, nutrient density of our food has gone down over time, all of that stuff. But the people part of it is that we can put people back to work doing this in a really good way. And the No Regrets Initiative maintains that landscapes are so much more interesting with people on it. So a lot of their philanthropic and investment work is going to ensuring that farmers maintain ownership of their land, which is something that a lot of investors and philanthropists don't focus on. And rural America is in need of support when it comes to economic development. first learning how to grow food in America, we needed labor because at that point growing food was incredibly labor intensive. And so instead of developing an economic system that determined how to pay people to grow said food and fiber that we needed, we devised the transatlantic slave trade mm -hmm. to transport millions of people over a few hundred years from one continent to another to grow said food. And um, I mean, it was actually pretty brilliant. I, I studied the transatlantic slave trade and what it did economically to create a new world order when it comes to just different economic models that had never existed before. And um, just what that did was created a system of pretty deep subsidies for the cost of what it takes to produce different types of food. And we continue those subsidies today with the Farm Bill and that subsidizes commodities instead of food that we can actually eat. Um, and that's led to things like seven of the 10 lowest paying jobs in America mm. are jobs in the food system. Mm. So this question of value mm. and what it would take to make it circular again, right. there's a way that things that are basic human rights, at least in my mind, mm -hmm. things like shelter and water and food I talk about governance a lot because starting just from a basic point of view, even something like a basic income, right, is this question of you're caring for a large group of people, how do we do that equitably? Let's just start there. Starting from a place of caring for a large group of people and the environment equitably in a way that has continuous economic growth or at least just economic stability. We didn't, we didn't really value people and we didn't value land from the beginning. And when it comes back to changing policy and when it comes to shifting capital in the food system, that's usually the rub, mm. is we have valued making money. 
and we have valued making food as cheap as humanly possible. And a lot of the people that are doing that work are actually very well-intentioned people. Mm. There's a lot of people in the hunger world that are trying desperately to increase the calories of people who don't have food and just not in a systems view of what it looks like to keep ecosystems healthy in a way that can actually feed people that. When it comes to innovation following values is that if we value complexity and if we value systems thinking, then we value data, mm. real data about in, about products that we're developing. And so if you look at a piece of soil and you can see, oh, this plant isn't getting enough water, this plant isn't getting enough nutrients, let's pause for a second, mm. right there. Mm. Because that's a swivel point, especially in food systems, when it comes to what to do next. Do you put in a input like fertilizer, which a lot of fertilizers, if it's not really good compost, will create outputs quickly of the crop while degrading the soil over the long term so that we get to the situation we're in now where we have 60 years of topsoil left mm. all over the world. That is the short-term fertilizer route versus the long-term build healthy soil route where you just know you need to increase water storage and capture and you need to increase the nutrients getting to that plant. Circulate is the source for the latest news and insight on the circular economy. Find out more at circulatenews.org. We, we, we struggle with uncertainty. We are uncomfortable with uncertainty. We're animals in a habitat, and both fiber and food have a lot of struggles with this. Textiles globally, 80% of them are synthetic, 20% of them are cotton, and there's a slice of 1%, less than 1% is every other material, leather, wool, et cetera, right? And part of this movement was because natural quote unquote fibers that came out of the earth were too subject to the laws of nature. And we can't be having our crops fail, which is exactly what happened with food, right? Is we can't be having our crops fail. So we need to um, spice them up genetically to make sure that they can exist outside the laws of nature. And the same discomfort exists the complexity of soil, and one of the reasons why I work with people, is it reflects the complexity of people and systems. You have a group of people in an inner city community that are experiencing violence, so they get angry, you know, they destroy some things, police brutality, etc., riots. What do you do? You put a park in the community to calm them down. And it's kind of in the same way we do the Band-Aid solutions when it comes to food and fiber, and we just get more and more synthetic we do more and more band-aids, but we're not dealing with what's underneath. So far, we've heard Nikki argue passionately that people must be valued at the core of a more regenerative economy if we're to have the sort of future that we all want. And she's given us a concrete example of our food system which was developed without this principle and the consequences of that today. Still to come on this podcast, Nikki will share some of her best examples of where innovations today have been married to progress for people from the very start. And she'll explain why she feels that the evolution of storytelling and regional economies is an important part of the picture moving forward. First though, Nikki was asked what role digital technology played in developing a better economy that works better for people. And in her answer you'll hear her mention interview series, 
where she is referring to a project conducted by her firm, Silvestri Strategies, where they spoke to people in disadvantaged communities to try to understand their perspective on their futures. How can we make sure the largest number of people benefits from these innovations? I'm also on the advisory board of Project Drawdown, which is Paul Hawkins' initiative that's looking at a hundred or so odd ways of drawing carbon out of the atmosphere. It's a book that's going to be released next year. So they're looking at things like energy, buildings, transport, land use, food, cities, materials. And the last one is behavior. People. And I asked Paul, I focus on disadvantaged communities, economic development. What you got for me? And he said, Soon, I will have something for you. <laughs> we are trying to develop the technology first, make sure it works, then we will figure out how to include people. I think my assertion is that people should be included from the very beginning because this issue, another thing that came up in the interview series a lot was, oh God, robots are gonna take over. Automation is gonna take over, we're not gonna have any more jobs. What's gonna happen? People, truckers. No, conductors, train, con oh no, oh no, oh no. That, literally, that was the energy that came up in a lot of the interviews. And one interesting thing, that was, that was this part of the interview series. The other part of the interview series was, but that's already happened. And it came up a lot when I was talking to the fiber people, that it's not like we have produced things like cotton in America particularly equitably, before technology made it easier, if you know what I mean. So, you know, slavery of Africans from another continent, automation that means you can strip the earth of all of its resources without putting anything back in, potatoes, potatoes for a lot of people, you know? It's not about technology and digital versus people. It's about our innovation follows our values, just period. And if our values were crap before, and our values are crap now, our innovation will continue to crap on different types of people and the planet. So my assertion is let's have our values not be crap. And there are a number of things that very much excite me when it comes to values not being crap and how technology is helping those. I talked to the head of the Biomimicry Institute. I saw the biomimicry up there. And we had a great conversation about structure versus chemicals. The lotus leaf, for example, has bumps on it, which means that the high tension capacity of water sits on top of the leaf and it doesn't soak down. So if you make a water-resistant jacket, instead of coating it with something terrible that's going to give you migraines and screw up your kids, you just make it like a lotus leaf and it wicks the water, right? It's good in theory, it hasn't worked yet, but it will, I'm telling you it will. And biomimetic solutions like that, when you project into the future, we also talked about 3D printing and how nature has a limited palette that it works with. There's a few materials nature uses to produce everything. And if we think about that limited palette going into a 3D printer, materials that really work for the circular economy because they're biodegradable and circulate really well. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, who's gonna create those products? 
Who's going to benefit from those products? Who can we put to work doing that kind of stuff? That's where my mind goes. I'm also on the advisory board of World Pulse, which is a social network transforming women's lives worldwide through digital connections. So women internationally are having a bit of a struggle. I'm sure this is not news to many of us. World Pulse connects 24,000 women from 190 countries and have impacted 2 million people since they have started. And the bulk of the way that they do their work is through storytelling. Someone posts a story, a woman posts a story on the platform about what they want, what they want to do, and they talk about what resources they need to do it. That connects them to women in their region and all over the world that can help them do what they want to do. It's a technology platform that's just allowing women, mostly women of color from around the world, to organize in exactly the way that they want to. And it, it's not shiny. You know, it's, it's not rocket science. Another thing that's really interesting is an organization called Fibershed, which talks about soil to soil clothing, climate beneficial clothing. So they have a network all over America where they work with sheep ranchers who shear their wool. Well, first of all, they graze the sheep in a way that sequesters carbon, right? Shear the wool, process the wool, and then create an article of clothing that they can say sequestered X metric tons of carbon as opposed to emitted X metric tons of carbon. And the point of a fiber shed, because that's not a super new concept when it comes to soil to soil clothing, but the concept of a fiber shed is about building regional economies. I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that in the end, but one of the important things to them is that that's a part of their definition of a circular economy. It's not good enough to just be having large sheep farms, sheep ranches, that are producing a ton of climate beneficial wool that can then be shipped somewhere to be processed and made into clothing and then shipped back. They're looking at every step of the supply chain and how to keep it regional so that people understand the story of the clothing. And that's something that's really important with the circular economy, is that it can be an abstract concept depending on what scale at which it happens. So focusing on the regional in terms of my work is not because I think everything should be reasonable or everything should be reg regional. It's not that. It's the fact that the opportunity with regional economies is the storytelling, is the human connection, is allowing people to see, taste, and touch what circular actually means because they can see every step of the supply chain happening 100 or so miles from their home. And when they understand that, when people understand that, we can make better governance decisions about how to put the kind of innovation ecosystem in place that allows this stuff to happen, which is incredibly necessary moving forward. So although Fibershed is working on climate beneficial clothing, what they are actually doing is creating an example of the democratic infrastructure, the, the democratic education infrastructure necessary to create good governance and bridging urban and rural communities. It's quite brilliant. This interview was originally recorded as part of the Disruptive Innovation Festival. You can find out more at thinkdiff.co. So that was Nikki Silvestri talking about why it's so crucial that the circular economy factors in people 
and about the value that can be gained by working in local and regional economies. As we said earlier, the interview with Nikki was originally recorded at the DIFF last November as part of a panel discussion that included US technologist Robert Scoble and economist and author Paul Mason. You can find the full recording of that event in the highlights session at thinkdiff.co. Next time on the Circulate podcast. Saving up and buying a nice stereo, uh, buying a car, things like that. They're kind of big life moments, but they're based around purchases. But now a lot of those things don't really exist because you, you don't buy a CD collection, you have Spotify, you, you, well, if you're people are you're people living in cities, they're not buying cars. Uh, even things like buying mobile phones and stuff, people, aren't, people don't buy them anymore. They're, they're, on, they're on contracts that they see as kind of... Um, it's a monthly payment, someone's looking after it, and at the end of that, you'll get rid of it and get a new one. So that kind of, I wonder whether we're starting to see the change of, um, of an emerging subscription mindset. That was Rich Gilbert from the Agency of Design. Tune in next week to find out what the circular economy means for designers of business models and products, and more specifically, how to make a success of product service systems today. Keep your eye on Circulate to find out when the next podcast is out or look for it where you normally find your podcasts. But until next time, it's goodbye from me. Thanks for listening to the Circulate podcast. Access the full range of our podcasts from circulatenews.org.